Oh, Father, we ask for help now as we take our Bibles and we open them and we receive a word from you. Thank you for this book, Lord. It is so remarkable. This unique word that is you speaking to us as holy men of the past, guided by your Holy Spirit, recorded precisely what you would have them write. Father, thank you for the relevance of it and thank you for how it convicts us and it encourages us and it strengthens us in our walk. And may these things all happen now. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was a kid, I'm talking in high school, we lived in Vicksburg, Michigan, and in our house there, we had a big stone fireplace, and for some reason, I don't know why, and I have no idea where it has gone since, my mother had placed as a decorative item on this long stone bench that ran along this fireplace, a big, heavy book. It was an old book when I was 15 years old, so it's really old now. But um, this book was falling apart. It was an antique book, and I remember it being about four or five inches thick. And it was the genealogy of the Babbitts. I have no idea who the Babbitts are. Do you know of all the books in our home that did not get read, that's one of them. But every once in a while, I would sit on the edge of that fireplace. Generally, if there was a fire in the fireplace, which wasn't often, and I wanted to be warm, and I would sit there and I would hold that book on my lap and just page through it. Whole lot of information that I just had no interest and I didn't care. It was interesting, and this is totally by my memory, which is not so reliable. But as I recall, there were some points of interest in the Babbitt family. There was a connection with us as my mother had become the caretaker of, a, of a, an old lady who had no family. And she was a Blodgett and uh, she was related on her side of the family to the Babbitts. I recall in the Babbitt family line, there was a missionary in the 1700s who went out into the Ohio Valley and was killed trying to reach... Native Americans. I thought that was interesting when I was 16 years old. I thought, well, that was a good story. A couple lines there. have no idea if it was true. I don't know how they documented it. And then I found a guy in the Babbitt family who was a member of the Tea Party. The Boston Tea Party. Not the Tea Party Tea Party. The Boston Tea Party. He dressed up like an Indian and took his tomahawk and busted crates and threw tea in the harbor. I thought that was pretty interesting. And then, believe it or not, I found another fellow that was interesting that I remember. I must have thought they were interesting. I can remember this. A Babbitt who invented Babbitt steel. That doesn't mean anything to anybody, but I'm kind of interested in stuff like that. A special kind of steel that was hard enough to make ball bearings so that machinery wouldn't wear out. And it was one of the contributing factors to bringing in the Industrial Revolution. That's all I remember about the Babbitt genealogy. And I have to tell you that that is more interesting than Genesis chapter 36 and the genealogy of Esau, which is our text today. Will you turn there with me, please? 
Genesis chapter 36. Now, we will trust that the message isn't downhill from here. And I have to tell you that just like when you read your Bible and you get to the genealogy section and you let your eyes skim over it so that with some level of integrity you can check off that you read that chapter, but you do it as fast as you can and you get to the next chapter. I was really tempted to go to chapter 37 this morning and begin what I've been waiting for, which was part of my motivation for doing Genesis to begin with, and that is the life of Joseph. But as I glanced through it, I decided I better not just move too quickly that there must be a reason that God put Genesis chapter 36 between 35 and 37. Do you think? And so... To at least help you out a little bit, we're not going to read the chapter today. We're going to read about the first six verses in a few minutes. We won't even do that right now. I want to tell you that I'm the first to admit that reading Genesis 36 is, I was thinking, it's about like being stuck in the airport in Beijing and killing time by reading their phone book. You know, just a bunch of names of people you don't care about and you can't pronounce. But Genesis 36 is in our Bible. And it is inspired of God. Holy men of God, Peter said, of the past, were led to record these passages according to the Holy Spirit. And there's a reason that God put it there. You can let your eyes fall on the page. It begins with, this is the account of Esau. And we know Esau, the twin brother, older twin brother of Jacob. And we'll talk more in detail and remind ourselves of this man in a few minutes. And Esau took wives and... And then Esau, verse 6, took his wives and sons and they moved to Seir with all their stuff. Verse 9, this is the account of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's son. And then it goes down that list. And the sons of Eliphaz, the sons of Reol. Verse 15, these were the chiefs among Esau's descendants, the sons of Eliphaz. On it goes, this whole list, which wife had which son grandsons, about three generations recorded here. Verse 31, these were the kings who reigned in Edom before any Israelite king reigned. Esau's descendants propagated, filled the land and set up serf kingdoms and city-states before Israel even had a king. Verse 40, we see that the These were the chiefs descended from Esau by name, and they repeat him again. And then it concludes, and this was Esau, the father of the Edomites. A record, a historical record, not very edifying, not the chapter that you would grab and rip out of your Bible to stuff in your pocket if you were to be stranded on an island without a copy, a complete copy of God's word. And so this morning, in our treatment of this passage, and so that we can with integrity say that we've studied the book of Genesis, at least at some level, I want to ask three questions about Genesis 36. Question number one is, why does it matter? Why does God put genealogies in the Bible? Why does it matter? Question number two is, how did it happen? How did it happen? I'll tell you what it is in a minute. Question number three is, so what can we do? What can 
we do in response to what we see happened in Esau's family. You see, our title does make sense this morning and it ties it all together. This is indeed a legacy of the lost. Because the overriding lesson of the passage is is that a man made choices and decisions and as a result, the blessing of God was pulled from him and for generations, even eons of time, his family is characterized by being pagan and lost. I think there's a lesson for us there. But first question as we begin and go in order of our questions, the first question, why does it matter? When we read a a genealogy, and there are many in Scripture, you know, um, one reason is, is simply the historical credibility or the historical authority of our Bibles. Our Bible is, at some level, a historical text. And one of the things that we do in history is we record where people came from. Also remember that the recipients of this passage, the first recipients of this passage, through Moses the historian and probably other contributing editors, but the Pentateuch is by and large, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, is by and large credited to the authorship of Moses. It was written to the children of Israel as they left Egypt uh, some four or five hundred years after this, time of Esau and Jacob, and, and they needed to know from whence they've come. They didn't originate in Egypt. They were captives in Egypt. And this is their people line. This is from where they've come. This is who you are. I think that throughout Scripture as well, one of the things that is fascinating about genealogies is that you can document people groups And you can document authentic history through the Bible. In other words, by and large, even though many secular students and secular scholars are critical of the Bible and would say it's not the inspired Word of God, most would not deny the reality of the veracity of the historical account. It really happened. These were really real people who really lived. And I was thinking... That encourages me a little bit. It doesn't mean that the Bible came from God, but it it means that the Bible makes sense and that there is some credibility there, as opposed to a very popular person right now, and I'm going to say his name, Glenn Beck. He's really popular right now, and on Fox News, he gets his pen out, and he uses his marker board, and he does a lot with the founding fathers of our country in the last year or so, and he breaks down these people, and he shows what they really said, who they really are, what they really believed in. And it's interesting to me that just a week or two ago, Glenn Beck called on our nation to turn back to God at the steps of the Abraham Lincoln Memorial. And I've often thought, as I've watched Glenn Beck work his pen on his marker board, showing the veracity of the history of the United States, I wish that Glenn would do the same thing with the historical accounts of his own faith and religion. Because it's bogus! His books, sacred books that he reads... It's a very popular religion in America, is filled with names and genealogies that no one's ever heard of before. And there's no archaeological evidence and there's no credibility. And in fact, the very names and genealogies in there discredit his faith in a lot of ways. 
And I was thinking as we open our Bibles, when we read about Abraham and we read about Isaac and we read about Jacob and Esau, these are real guys. There is no disputing that they really lived. These are authentic accounts. So the historicity of the Bible is tied in with the very genealogies of the Bible. So at that level, at some scholastic professorship level, genealogies are valuable. They're not very fun to preach through on Sunday morning, but we'll make it to next week if the Lord tarries. First of all, the historical credibility of the Bible is one reason why it matters. Question is, why does it matter? Second part is prophetic fulfillment. This genealogy matters because God made some specific statements to Abraham. And one of the things that God said to Abraham, in fact, let's just turn there back to Genesis 17. It's not hard to get there. To Genesis chapter 17 and notice what God told Abraham. When Abram, and this is when he changes his name, Genesis chapter 17, beginning with verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God Almighty, El Shaddai. Walk with me, walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you. And look, I will greatly increase your numbers. And Abraham fell face down. Now this is to a childless man. All right. And he said, I will greatly increase your numbers. He fell face down and God went on to say, for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. You will be called Abraham for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. And I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you and so forth. Somewhere along the line, when you read that, you have to say, did Abraham become many nations? Well, chapter 36 shows that he did. Through his grandson Esau, let's see, his grandson Esau, he became, he shows his genealogy that at least part of his family became many nations. God made a promise and God kept it. I think there's another thing concerning prophetic fulfillment that is proven in Genesis chapter 36. It's here for historical credibility. It's here for prophetic fulfillment and veracity of the prophecies fulfilled. And flip back to 27 verses um, 39. uh, Chapter 27 verse 39. And look what it says here. Esau was begging Isaac, his father, for a blessing. And he gives him a blessing. It's, in a sense, an anti-blessing. But he says, Esau begs. Jacob had already received the birthright. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But bless, bless me too, my father. Esau then wept aloud. End of verse 38, chapter 27. His father, Isaac, answered him, Your dwelling, okay, he's giving a prophetic pronouncement on Esau. Your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven above. 
You will live by the sword and you will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off your neck. He said, you're going to live away from the richest part of the world here. And you're going to serve your brother. Esau knew exactly who he was talking about. That was Jacob. And when the descendants look back and they look at the genealogy, they see that this is a people group that later God, when he gives the sons of Jacob permission through the direction of Moses and then his understudy Joshua to finally enter the land, they pushed back these people and brought them into a subservient role. Okay? And so you have... People able to look at the word and say, God said this. Did it really happen? Yes. These are the people groups and these are the people groups that a lesser, younger brother conquers. Fulfilling scripture, prophetic scripture. So the historical veracity or credibility or accuracy, the prophetic fulfillment. I think it's interesting too, along prophetic fulfillment lines, Let me just comment on this right now because I might not remember to fit it in later. That if you follow the genealogical lineage of these two brothers, Esau and his line, and Jacob and his line, we see that God fulfilled his promise through Jacob, through the son of Judah, through the house of Judah, to bring about King Jesus. I think it's fascinating to think about this. When we go to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, and you don't have to go there, but you know the story. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, we consider this part of the Christmas story. And the Magi from the East came to worship. Do you know who they stopped and inquired of? A king named Herod. Do you know that Herod was an Edomite, a son of Esau? who sought to slaughter all of the babies so that he could slaughter his cousin, King Jesus, a son of Jacob. Isn't that interesting? How scripture unfolds. Isn't it interesting, and we'll try to bring this out, that one day, in a hurry, in his hunger, in his undisciplined state, a red-haired, hairy guy made a decision not ever realizing that someday his great-great-great-great-grandson would try to kill Jesus because of a decision he made many generations earlier and a condemnation that that brought upon his family. You unfold these kinds of things because genealogies exist in the Bible. Thirdly, there is a practical aspect, and I'll not comment long on it. There's some verses in Deuteronomy that we could look up, but just let me say it so we can move on from this part. We have the historical credibility of the Bible seen in a genealogy. We have prophetic fulfillment seen in genealogies and in other genealogies in other ways as well. Thirdly, there's a practical aspect to this genealogy, and that is this. This was written to a group of people who were crossing the Jordan to go into Canaan land, and God specifically told them to wipe out the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, God's judgment had become fulfilled. From Genesis 15, he said it would take four more generations until my wrath is, is filled up, till my sin tank is filled up with you people, and then I'm going to bring the wages of sin upon you, and it's death. And he did it through the swords of the Israelite. But guess what? But the Edomites, he said, don't you touch them. Those are your brothers. And the sons of Esau, 
who lived in the land were to be protected. And so Joshua, General Joshua, had a genealogy that he could whip out of his pocket on the battlefield and say, now who are you? Who are you? Grab some guy and put the Chinese water torture to him and say, where'd you come from? Whoop, let him go. We don't kill this guy. You're just going to cut firewood for us. All right. And so they protected the Edomites. Edom, make sure you know, means red. And any time you hear Edomite, you could really say Esauites. Esau was Edom. It's his name. Called Edom, the Edomites. See, in verse 1 of chapter 36, this is the account of Esau that is Edom. So there's the historical, prophetic, and practical information that we can gather from a genealogy. I'm sure you're glad you came to church to get all that this morning so far. Second question in our message from Genesis 36. How did it happen? How did it happen? The question is, it. As I looked at this passage and pondered this, it is very evident that this is the genealogy of a godless people. This is the genealogy of a pagan group. This is a genealogy of a hard people, of a people who rejected God. This list records an entire family without one believer in it, essentially, as far as we know. It could be that there were some converts back. No righteous individuals stand out in the account. A young man born into a household with every opportunity to know God, the God of his grandfather Abraham, the God of his father Isaac, a man born into a household where the truth was right there, where he was taught right from wrong, where he was a child of the covenant. He was a child of promise and blessing. There's no reason that he couldn't have benefited from that and done right. And yet... Ultimately, he raises up a family of lost people who raise up a family of lost people who raise up a family of lost people. And I thought to myself, why did that happen? What are some practical things that people do when they have every opportunity to grow up in righteousness? What are some simple practical steps that they take that turn them pagan from righteousness? We see it all the time among our young people. And so let's have a little... little sidebar in our message right now and if you want to jot down just a few simple practical thoughts this title under how did it happen is how to raise godless children who raise godless children how to raise godless children who will in turn raise godless children because that's what we see in Esau's genealogy he had godless children who raised godless children who had godless children who had godless children and they hate the people of righteousness okay First of all, look in the text now, so we look in God's word here. This is the account of Esau, that is Edom, and immediately Edom pops out. Edom means red, and we are reminded of a time when Esau despised spiritual things. He despised the blessing of God. Do you remember that part of the story, don't you? Let's go to Genesis 25, and let's just refresh ourselves with it. First of all, point number one on how to raise godless children who raise godless children is number one, live an ungodly, undisciplined life. Live an ungodly, undisciplined life. Just do that. 
and you're well on your way, if you ever have children, to raising godless children. Live an ungodly, undisciplined life. And that was characteristic of Esau. Notice chapter 25. Look what it says. Chapter 25, beginning with verse 27, is the birth account of Jacob and Esau. And, and this happened when Isaac was 60 years old, verse 26, and then verse 27 of chapter 25 of Genesis. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man, staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I am famished. That is why he was also called Edom, red. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. That's the same thing as saying he spit upon his spiritual heritage. It is no wonder that in Hebrews chapter 12, we have a summary and illustration. I'll read it to you in Hebrews chapter 12 and uh, verse 16. Esau is used as an illustration of someone who is sexually immoral and godless. It says in Hebrews 12, verse 16, See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance, writes, as the oldest son. The most valuable thing he had in the world, his spiritual standing, his standing of blessing with his father, he sold And it says he didn't even care about it. He despised it. That's a strong word. Just throw it away. The blessing of God in my life, the spiritual heritage that I possess, all the things that are right and righteous, why should I care? I wander the hills. I'm my own man. Me, big, strong guy, kill animals, cook stew. I don't need anybody. That's Esau. Tough guy. Reliant Might be some guys like Esau here today. Pride yourself on your ability to stand on your own two feet. That's Esau. It says that he dwelt out in the wilderness. He wouldn't be tamed, is what that means. He wouldn't bring himself in to civil living. And as a result, he was an ungodly, immoral man. Even given in the account of the kinds of wives that he picked and concubines that he had. He despised the blessing of God, not realizing that it would have long-lasting effect, that his great-great-grandson would try to kill Jesus. In Romans, between chapter 9 and 11, there's some interesting passages there. and It's interesting there that even as God and his sovereignty is at work, it says that God loved Jacob, but he hated Esau. Part of the reason is is that Esau hated God. Esau despised his blessing. Esau was happy to not be a godly man. If that's you, and you are godless, and you're the head of a household, you grow up, maybe some of you young people that are here, you think you can stand on your own two feet, don't need all that God stuff, don't care about the Bible, don't pay attention to what your mom and dad say, Step number one to raising godless children who raise godless children 
You're undisciplined and you're ungodly yourself. These are not difficult points to understand, so let's not dwell on them too long. Secondly, you want to raise godless children who raise godless children, live, live an ungodly, undisciplined life, and then number two, live with an ungodly, unapproved wife. Notice in our text, we're back to chapter 36, our text of the day. First of all, this is the account of Esau, red, stew, despised his birthright. Verse 2, Esau took wives from the women of Canaan, Ada, daughter of Elon the Hittite, Aholabama, Olabama, there's, I'm not going to comment on that, daughter of Ana and granddaughter of Zibion, the Hivite, also Basimath, daughter of Ishmael and sister. There is a question, though, if you're a careful student, is that these wives have different names than the wives that are accounted for in uh, Genesis chapter 26, and um, where he took wives and it said their names. So some people will point and say, look, the genealogy lists names of wives for Esau that aren't the names of the wives that when he told his mom and dad who his wives were earlier in chapter 26, when it talks about these three wives that he took, they're different names. I don't know the ultimate answer. Here's what are some of the things that Bible scholars suggest resolving the conflict between the names that are listed in case you caught that. It could be, um, there are two or three names that are different. It could be that he had wives that he married when he was 40 is when he married these first couple, three Canaanite, Hivite wives. It could be that by the time this account was listed in this genealogy, they had died and he married some different wives and they were the ones that were listed. So his first wives might have died. He married many wives. He took a lot of different wives, ultimately Esau did. And it could be that these were his favorite wives and so he listed his favorite wives. All right. And it is also suggested by some that, that after they were married, some of these wives changed their names. So I don't know. It doesn't necessarily mean that the Bible has to be thrown out because we have this major contradiction in the names of the wives of Esau. And there's suggested reasons why that could be. But it is clear, and if you'll turn back to chapter 26 to document this, look in chapter 26 and look at verse 34. And this is where the names of the wives are given. When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Beeri the Hittite, and also Basimeth, daughter of Elon the Hittite. Notice verse 35, and they were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. If you turn to 2746, we also hear Rebekah, his mother, say, verse 46, I am disgusted with living because of these Hittite women. If Jacob takes a wife from among the women of this land, from Hittite women like these, my life will not be worth living. A mother-in-law about her daughter-in-laws. You want to raise godless children who end up raising godless children? If you're not married, then do this. Find somebody who is outside of the faith. Find someone who does not love Jesus. Find somebody who is not an approvable spouse. That's what Esau did. He saw a pretty woman, he'd take pretty woman. A lot like Samson. Took them from the Canaanites, the pagans, the idol worshipers, the people who did not care about El Shaddai, the God of Abraham. And secondly, break your parents' hearts with your spousal choice. Bring home a husband or a wife, depending on your gender. That when they leave and you go home, your parents look at each other and said, I'll die. 
they come and visit us again. You see, because it's a no-brainer, the equation works like this. It's not a difficult formula. If you have a spouse who is godless and you have kids, it's really easy for that godlessness to just move on. A little warning to young people here is, I, I am not a proponent, nor do, I think that, nor do I think the Bible supports any form of evangelistic dating or courtship. You don't go with an unsaved person. You don't go out with a pagan. You don't go out with a non-believer. You don't go out with someone like that so that they'll get saved. No matter how cute they are, no matter how well they play basketball, no matter how good of a bowler they are, no matter what kind of car they have, you don't go out with them because they're off limits. And there is no fellowship between light and darkness. And as we've had repeated in this Genesis series, Paul's words come back from 1 Corinthians 15, 33, that bad company corrupts good morals. You want to raise godless children who raise godless children? Go marry a godless person. We'll talk in a minute about what to do if you are already married to a godless person. Thirdly, live in ungodly, unprotected places. Let's look back at our text in 36. Okay? We see, first of all, that if you want to be ungodly and raise godless children and have a genealogy that looks like Esau, then despise God's blessing, be undisciplined and ungodly personally, and then disobey God's will, live with an ungodly, unapprovable wife. And thirdly, I want you to see that Esau, verse 6, took his wives and his sons and his daughters and all the members of his household as well as his livestock and all his other animals and all the goods he had acquired in Canaan and he moved to a land some distance from his brother Jacob. It says that the land was not rich enough to support both of their interests. Does that remind you of Lot or what? Remember Lot and Abraham? And of all the dumb things Lot could have done, it was to remove himself from godly Uncle Abraham. Now, you've got to manage your livestock, but I think of all the things that Esau did, he did not help himself by moving away from godly people. He moved away from righteous people. Live, number three, in ungodly, unprotected places. That is, integrate yourself with the world. Integrate yourself with godlessness. Become a friend of the world. Become one who loves the things of the world. Learn to let the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life drive you. And it's very likely that you will have godless children who in turn will have godless children who will have godless children. Three simple things that Esau did. He despised his birthright. He despised the things that were sacred. He disobeyed the will of God and he took ungodly, unapprovable wives. Thirdly, he distanced himself from God's people. He distanced himself from God's people. He lived in ungodly, unprotected places. It's very difficult for us to make it our practice and our lifestyle to live away from God's people. It's a special warning for young people going to secular universities. Oh, I'll be all right. I'll be all right. No, you know what? You are out from the umbrella of your godly home. You are out from the umbrella of your church and your pastors and your teachers. And you're out there living alone and you are living with pagans. Pagans to the nth degree. Pagans that would make the pagans of old blush nowadays. 
And I'll be okay, I'll be okay. You might be okay, you might not be okay. Personally, I'm a big proponent of seeing your children go to Bible college for a year or two. Cost money. Go to a Christian college. Got to be wise in all campuses. And I'm not saying a kid can't connect with believers and get in church. But why go have the Philistines and the Canaanites indoctrinate your children at a secular university? It's a very deep concern. You need to watch your children closely when they're in universities that are secular. Three things you can do, young people, to have a godless genealogy, live ungodly and undisciplined, live with ungodly, unapproved wife, a wife or spouse, live in an ungodly, unprotected place, integrate with the world, distance yourself from God's people, expose yourself to all ungodliness and filthiness without the protection of God's people. And Esau went the way of the world. So that leads us to our third and final question as we wrap up. First question was, if I can find it, the first question was, why does it matter? Why do we have genealogies in the Bible? We talked about the historical, prophetic, practical reasons. How did it happen? How did it happen that Esau raised such a godly family? How did it happened that Esau was the father of the ungodly, of the lost. He was undisciplined and ungodly and so forth. Thirdly, in life application before we leave, what can we do? What can we do? How do we respond to something like this? You see, we're all writing a story, aren't we? We all have the opportunity, potentially, to have a family tree to influence the next generation. Let me just give you three words. Know, teach, obey. First of all, let me just remind you that you need to know that God loves to interrupt family stories. Know that God loves to interrupt family stories. It's possible that you're already well on your way to Passing the baton on to the next generation of godless people. And they're your children. They're your DNA. Don't give up on those kids. And there's many reasons why our families end up in the circumstances in which we end up. But the Bible, for example, is filled with illustrations. And our church is filled with illustrations of how God loves to interrupt family stories. I'm thinking of a little snaky, beady-eyed scumbag of a guy who got up in a tree one day to see Jesus. His name was Zacchaeus. And he was hated, and he'd just soon knife you in the back as look at you. And when he spoke his native language, he spoke in lies. And Jesus looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to your house today. You never know which day Jesus is going to come to your house. You keep praying, and you keep living, And you just know and you invite God to interrupt your family story. All right? Number two, we must take responsibly our charge to teach. We know that God interrupts family stories, but we must teach. God clearly places responsibility on parents to teach their children to walk in the truth. We'll not take time to turn there, but the classic passage, of course, is Deuteronomy chapter 6 
when you're going along the way, when you sit down, when you stand up, embed it in their minds, put it on the refrigerator door, put it on the doorpost, memorize scripture together, teach the word together, model biblical living. Let the integrity and the ethic of your life be Christ-like so that you don't undermine scripture in your own life. You might farm out your kids to other people to learn math. You're not allowed biblically to farm out your kids to other people to teach them about Jesus. It's your job. It's your job. We try to have a nice Olympian book for you. Try to have a structured youth ministry program. We try to have Sunday school classes with godly people like Wayne and Debbie in there with your children. That's to reinforce what you're doing at home, not to take away from what you're doing. Psalm 71, 17 says, Since my youth, O God, you have taught me, and to this day I declare your marvelous deeds. Verse 18, Psalm 71, Even when I am old and gray, do not forsake me, O God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your might to all who are to come. The psalmist was filled with the burden Lord, even when I'm old and gray, do not forsake me, don't let me die, until I declare your power to the next generation and your might to all who are to come. What a responsibility. Fathers and mothers, it would be very valuable for you to take time to read Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 9 on your own. Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9. Remind yourselves of our responsibility to teach the next generation. And thirdly, obey. This is a word to children here. Children, as you grow up, if you want to be godly and you want to raise godly children, then the Bible is clear in Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, that you are to obey your children and obey your parents and then your way will be blessed. Your way will be blessed. I'm at the end of my notes in the conclusion, and I, I've overlooked something that I know I've written in here that I think is there it is. I was going to hit it under the point. I want to comment for a minute on what to do if you've already been married to somebody who's ungodly. What are you going to do? You're godly, and you're married to somebody who's ungodly. Do you know that the Bible addresses this? Can I read 1 Corinthians chapter 7? Just listen. You can turn there if you want. We'll conclude momentarily. 1 Corinthians 7 addresses this very point. He says this. Paul is speaking under the inspiration of Scripture. It wasn't something that he received directly from the Lord. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 12. He said, If a brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband, 1 Corinthians 7, 13, and if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Now look at this. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, 
whether you will save your husband. Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? You understand what Paul's saying? In the church at Corinth, they had an issue. They had believing people married to pagans, ungodly people. Now they're trapped. They're already involved in the formula of passing on godlessness to the next generation. I have an ungodly spouse that's going to influence my children. And so Paul says, you know what you do? You don't divorce them. You don't leave. That's not the testimony of the believer. The believer is that you are to stay because, and I would understand, and this concept is not without its debate among Bible scholars, what does he mean that he says here, verse 14, for the unbelieving husband has been sanctified, that our idea is set apart through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her, her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. I take this to be this. There is no evidence in Scripture that what that is teaching is that because you are saved, your husband and your children will automatically be saved or included in the household of faith. That's not true. But what I do think it is, is that it's as though because you are there and you are godly and you are God's person and you are a chosen one of God to live out the truths of Scripture, that you are holding an umbrella that whoever gets under that umbrella with you has a kind of a special grace. There is a reality that your sanctification brings a blessing to your household that your husband has opportunities to receive Christ and to grow in grace that he wouldn't have otherwise, or your wife, and that your children, and many of you have experienced this, your children have been saved because of your testimony and because you didn't divorce your unsaved husband when you got saved or when you finally woke up and realized you married somebody you shouldn't have married and you were saved all along, but you disobeyed your parents. You didn't divorce them. You stayed with them. And now you have children, but your children are believing. And so there is like a common grace that comes to your household, not a saving grace per se, but that you set your household apart in a special way. I don't understand all the ramifications of what Paul is teaching. Peter talked about this a little bit in 1 Peter chapter 3. And he said, don't try to win them over with words, but try to win them over with the quietness of your life and the holiness of your life. And then they will see how you live and you will win them over. That's the best advice I can give you. It's the most biblical advice I can give you. Do not despair. God loves to interrupt family stories. Claim His grace. Keep living the truth. And let your spirit of grace flow through your household so that God can use it to sanctify your spouse. To see the day come when they're sitting here in church with their Bible on their lap next to you. Wouldn't that be awesome? To see a day when you will hear your husband or your wife's voice pray to their Heavenly Father in Jesus' name. Be saved to see them walk in the river and get baptized. Don't give up, all right? Let's pray. Father, our prayer is that you would find us a faithful people, a Christ-centered, Bible-believing people. Lord, life is often overwhelming in the circumstances in which we find ourselves are unmendable, humanly speaking. But Lord, it's our heart desire that we would have a family tree 
filled with the fruit of righteousness. That our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren and our great-great-grandchildren would love Jesus because somehow we love Jesus and the decisions and choices we make allow your grace to flow freely from one generation to the next. Father, encourage those who are in mixed marriages and bring conviction on young people who are involved in ungodly relationships. Give us a wisdom for living and for raising our children. And may our children come behind us and find us faithful. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.